Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we're going to be talking about Iran. Uh, And the reason for this, of course, is that with the nuclear deal, everyone is talking about Iran right now. Everyone's got some strong opinions on the nuclear deal, whether it's a good or bad thing. Most people haven't read the 100-something page document. I actually have. And uh, Iran is doing a bunch of new stuff. Now that they have the deal, uh, the entire geopolitical situation has changed, and we want to provide a little bit of context for that. And and the big questions that we should be asking as a people right now is, what do we do going forward now that we're in a different position? Uh, and as usual, we don't have the answer, but hopefully we can provide you the context to help you reconsider. So we think maybe the first thing that'd be helpful to you know, provide a little contact for what's going on right now with Iran and the region and their motivations is talk a little bit about, you know, 20th century history of Iran and how we got to where we are right now. Right. And yeah. And, and I guess it starts the interesting place to start, or, you know, you have to pick some point of departure and ours will be World War One, where uh, the Ottomans, after being the sick man in Europe for a while, uh, they lose the war. They get busted up into a whole bunch of different colonies um, or countries, you know, sort of run by the French and the English. And the lines are actually drawn, Xander told me earlier, intentionally to break up Sunni and Shiite populations and install typically minority government puppets that were dependent on foreign support to not get overthrown by the majorities. And so you have this new Middle East you know, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, all these places that have been drawn by outside powers, Sunnis and Shiites quite split up, where previously in the Ottoman Empire, predominantly Sunni with some Shiite minorities that were sort of so small that they were just tolerated and kind of kept in a corner. Um, For Iran, what changes here is they have historically been known as Persia, and their borders haven't changed all that much, in part because they're Uh, almost all Shiite uh, and well-contained, but also they're a different ethnic group from the Arabs. They have a different language. So it's really clear for them that we're Persia, we're Iran, we're right here. But looking West, everything's super different. uh, And you now have some simmering tension uh, in part kept down by the Cold War. Now, as part of this policy of uh, trying to control the Middle East remotely, 
the United States ends up propping up a Shah, uh, which is essentially a king, um, also known as now known as the Shah, and uh, he was, needless to say, not that great. The Iranian people weren't fond of him, and they have this big revolution that's very, very religious in its tone to overthrow him, and uh, he gets kicked out. And of course, a big uh, part of the legacy there is that since we were propping him up uh, and we were sort of the puppeteer, there's a lot of hostility towards the U.S. as part of the revolutionary rhetoric that is still around today. Um, and so this revolution was so religious that it created a essentially religious theocracy. And it's important to understand what that is. I guess revolutionary religious theocracy. So we won't get into too much detail about the government structure, but the short version is they, yeah, they have a president and a parliament. Um, so, you know, President Rouhani is the guy now. It was Ahmadinejad. But it's the Ayatollah that really runs the show. Uh, really, nothing gets done without him. And he's the head of he's a he's a religious head of this council of mullahs which are theologists and scholars and through that group they actually govern they they come up with most policy and everyone really has to do what the ayatollah says at the end of the day and you know it was interesting i i think a lot of how the united states and the west interacts with and is going to interact with Iran in the coming years or potentially decades is colored somewhat by Western relations with Iran throughout the 20th century. And you mentioned the overthrow of the Shah, which I imagine some folks will be familiar with, the 1979 Iranian Revolution. I was reading an article this morning in Foreign Affairs where, where I learned that this history of resentment against intervention really goes back a little further and I'll just throw this in for color. And so in 1901, actually, this English guy, William Knox Darcy, uh, essentially sealed a deal with the Iranian monarch at the time, Muzaffar Ad-Din Shah, essentially to explore for oil. And he explored for seven years and finally found something in 1908 and started a company that ended up being called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, uh, which then later became known as British uh, British Petroleum, or BP, no so the BP kidding. oil spill. So it was, yeah, that's the genesis of BP. And what happened was the Iranian people saw the involvement of what became British Petroleum and the deal that was penned and essentially what this British guy and these British business people were able to take out of Iran as intervention. So Iran nationalized the company in 1951, and uh, then in 1953, because Iran nationalized the company... Right. Okay, this is where I know some stuff, yeah. Yeah, Mossadegh was overthrown uh, essentially by what a lot of Iranians thought at the time was the West. So they saw the Shah that was implemented in 1953 as a reaction to them trying to take back their their oil company, which is kind of interesting. I, I certainly didn't know about that, but it runs deep. That's And that's great context for, wait, why was the United States and the West propping up a monarch in Persia in the first place. Uh, and that's, that's, how, that's the story. That's cool. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting. It's something I didn't know. So, you know, keep reading. You usually find out new things, right? Yeah. So as you mentioned a moment ago, you can't really understand geopolitical uh, relationships in the Middle East without sort of a basic background of this Sunni-Shiite split, right? 
So first off, what are Sunnis and Shi'is? Well, they're different sects within Islam, and this goes way back. It's not like the Protestant-Catholic split in Christianity, which occurred, you know, well over a thousand years after Christianity was founded. The Sunni-Shia split uh, occurred essentially immediately after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, who was considered, well, he was the founder of Islam. And the split... Had, considered, <laughs> considered by many, yeah, founded Islam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he he was the. Let me, let me rephrase myself there. Yeah, uh, so Prophet Muhammad dies, and his followers essentially have a disagreement about who should succeed him. And real long story short, some folks think it should be this one guy Ali, and another guy, another group thinks it should be this guy Abu Bakr. And that's the genesis of the Sunni-Shia split. So as you mentioned, Iran is primarily Shia. I think Shias make up about 15% of all Muslims in the world. And yeah, then right. by contrast, is that right? Yeah. 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 And then by contrast, Saudi Arabia, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, is Sunni. And they, they're sort of a sub-branch called Wahhabi Sunni. So the... Iranian government, as you mentioned, is ruled by these mullahs, which are essentially like, uh, you know, Shia Islamic jurists. And the Iranian government being a revolutionary government right now, stemming from the 1979 revolution, is really anti-monarchy. Uh, they think that monarchies are un-Islamic and that an Islamic state, uh, well, an Islamic nation, not like ISIS, but an Islamic nation can only really be governed by a leading Islamic jurist. So this is a problem in terms of regional relations because Saudi Arabia is a monarchy. And that branch of Sunni Islam, uh, Wahhabism, basically kind of just lets that be okay so long as the monarch, you know, generally kind of abides by some general rules. It's kind of like a a hands-off approach to, you know, letting this man-made institution and this religious uh, institution coexist. Mm, yeah. So in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, uh, being the most populous and, and wealthiest and uh, one of the strongest uh, military-wise states in the Middle East, generally leads these Sunni coalitions, both militarily and diplomatically when they come about. And as I mentioned, they're ruled by a monarchy called uh, the, the Saud family, hence Saudi Arabia. It must be the only country in the world that's named after a guy. Like the guy that's in charge, and if he, what if Saud, you know, what if they all just thought, it does it, and a different dynasty takes, or, you know, a different dynasty takes over, does it become like, you know, uh, Bakiri Arabia or something? Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I, I, the country was, or the genesis of the country was the late 18th century, right? And it was a cooperation with this guy Saud and Ibn yeah. Wahhab, which is hence Wahhabism, and yeah. it's stuck, hasn't it? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, you don't even think about it. But if it stops being Saud in charge, I wonder if it becomes like, you know, Husseini Arabia or something like that. Anyway, I'm distracting us. No worries. I think it's it's an interesting point that just shows that there are certain areas in the world where there really is still a lot of regional change, right? Even just reflecting on how names can change that represent what a culture is, right? Yeah. Um, so hopping on this timeline a little bit just to keep providing some background on Iran... Uh, in 79, when the Iranian Revolution occurred, overthrew the Shah, this freaked out Saudi Arabia uh, because Ayatollah Khomeini, the guy who basically took charge in Iran after the revolution, 
immediately started to openly attack the legitimacy of this Saudi monarchy. And at first, Saudi Arabia tried to appeal to this new Iranian government saying, well, you know, we should, we should work together and have this sense of Islamic solidarity since we're both you know, governments that are essentially underpinned by, this, uh, by, by Islam. And, and that didn't work. The Ayatollah essentially continued to attack Saudi Arabia's uh, position, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but this war between Iran and Iraq started in 1980, and Saudi Arabia took sides. I think the big takeaway from this little thread is that one part of why Iran and Saudi Arabia don't get along so well is because Iran is primarily Shia and Saudi Arabia is primarily Sunni. Now, before 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, uh, and Iraq kind of sits right in between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is on the west and Iran is on the east. Um, Iraq kind of played this role as like a regional balancer. And by having this third strong country, this, this diplomatic approach, this sort of triangular diplomacy was enabled because you can kind of, you know, balance power off, you know, two or three. And Iraq sort of had an interesting makeup because while they were primarily Shia, it was something like 60% Shia, whereas Iran is 98%. Yeah, and Iraq was also like fairly secular as being run by the Ba'athists. So it was less prone to want to like need, have an ideological need to take sides in the Sunni-Shia struggle. Exactly. So while Iraq existed, they could essentially act as the buffer to Iran in the region uh, without Saudi Arabia sort of having to get directly involved, even though Saudi Arabia did end up supporting Iraq in this eight-year war in the 80s. But there was that element of balance, and I think it's probably important to understand that you know it, what, Iraq is a somewhat mixed country. Not It's primarily Shia, but not entirely, and it was the secular government, at least while Saddam Hussein was in power. Right. Yeah, and this is where we start to feel... I think one of the, the, some of the context or my core thesis in some of this late 20th century history is around, you, you've got to have a little bit of sympathy for their position vis-a-vis the whole nuclear thing. Because, you know, Iraq invades in 1980 and it's off. I mean, just, it's vicious. It's the last really bloody, terrible hundreds of thousands or millions of people died war, um, Basically, the Shia revolution like threatened the Ba'athist party because Shiites in Iraq were like, hey, yeah, okay, this is pretty cool. Um, and Saddam wanted Iranian oil, which is similar to what we saw in Kuwait, where he was just like, oh, yeah, oil, great, I'll just grab it. Um, anyway, so he, he sees a weak government in transition. He decides to attack, gains some territory. It's like, eh, this is going to be great. And it's not great. It's just eight years of slogging it out, trench warfare, uh, the gas, the the Iraqis, I think, gassed the Iranians a bunch, and the Iranians eventually turned the tide when – now Saddam mismanaged the war, but the Iranians eventually turned the tide by getting – they were so underprepared. I mean this is worse than the Soviets. They got young men armed with a red bandana and religious fervor to charge across open desert. So just imagine no cover at these – these dug-in gun placements and they're just getting gunned down as they ran for miles to get there. And then there would be so many of them that they would just overwhelm the gun emplacement, beat the crap out of the guy there, turn the gun around and start using it. And that's how they got 
that's how they won the war. It's just, uh, so the West, in particular the United States, also supported Iraq. And then we invade Iraq uh, in 2003 on shaky pretext, which not only removes that balancing point, uh, because it's now a two-power rather than three-power situation, but it also shifts shifts the Iraqi government that the United States supports directly into, at the time, the Saudi sphere. And so Iran is feeling pretty bloody threatened through this, through this period. And they go, well, we don't want a repeat of anything like the 1980 invasion again. We feel like the West is sort of gang up on us all the time, and we already don't like them. So they start, uh, you know, they start their nuke program in the 1990s, which is probably made for the same reason that anyone else these days wants a nuke program. It's not actually to nuke Israel, you know, Ahmadinejad's comments aside. It was about security as opposed to suicide, right? Because nuking Israel would be suicide. But it was about saying, hey, look, if you invade us again, we'll nuke you. We're just tired of it. It's just not going to happen anymore. And so by starting that program, they become this total pariah internationally, except for Russia and China. They get a ton of sanctions put on them by the West. I mean, it's brutal. You actually have, you have gas shortages in Iran, which is crazy to think about because they're just sitting on so much oil. And they move closer to Russia and China at this point because Russia and China aren't putting sanctions on them. And so they kind of fall into that sphere. But, but you know, eventually they end up putting their program on pause uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. But at this point, they're not trading with the West. The West hates them. They hate the West. They're kind of afraid. And sort of then, insta- you know, and we just invaded Iraq. And I mean, if you guys remember a few years ago when you were worried about not being able to make a deal with the nuclear program, people were talking about airstrikes just quite openly. So, you know, got to be a fascinating time for being an Iranian citizen in the lead up to this deal. You know, this war between Iran and Iraq, which lasted eight years, I mean, I, I don't think I've studied it in as great uh, a depth as you have, Eric, but it, it never really was driven home to me how terrible it was until it was described to me in the context of World War One type strategies. And I started seeing yeah. some pictures here. I mean, it really was trench warfare, two armies on the other side of a no man's land with human wave attacks. I, and then just being... It, it, a lot of these pictures look like, you know, the Somme or Verdun. It's really astonishing and terrifying that this type of war existed in our lifetimes, early in our lifetimes. But, you know, we can still devolve into pretty, pretty serious violence if things aren't handled correctly, right? Yeah. So that's a little background on Iran in the 20th century and sort of the the Sunni-Shi'i divide that determines really so much of geopolitics in the Middle East. And before we get into the meat of the nuclear deal, uh, we're just going to talk real quick about sort of a very, very brief summary of U.S. relations with Middle Eastern powers because the West and the United States specifically have been so involved over the course of the last several decades. So generally, the U.S. has allied with Sunni-dominated countries. So think Egypt, even if they've primarily been a secular government, largely Sunni, uh, Jordan, uh, UAE, Kuwait, and of course, more most importantly, Saudi Arabia. So when Iraq 
attacked Iran, we supported the aggressors, Iraq, but Saudi Arabia also supported the aggressors, Iraq. And we essentially sided with the Sunnis in part because we were afraid or opposed to this new revolutionary government that had just risen to power in 1979. All of these countries, all of these Sunni countries are generally geopolitically opposed to Iran, which is sort of a rising power in the region. Additionally, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but Shia-ruled countries were, during the Cold War, allied with the Soviet Union. So Iran was one of those. Syria was another. And while Syria is still primarily Sunni, it's another example of a Sunni-majority country that was nonetheless ruled by Shias. And there in, in Syria, the ruling party is a sect of Shia Islam called Alawite. So Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite um, Shia, for example. So whereas in the Cold War, you had sort of this large, large geopolitical um, imposition of ideology over you know, global relations, as that broke down, you begun to see, uh, or you began to see more people in that region search for non-ideological identities. So, you know, well, we are now no longer allied with the Soviet Union. What makes us a country? And I think a lot of people in the U.S., you know, ask themselves sometimes, well, why can't Iraq just, you know, learn to get along with Iran? And why can't Saudi Arabia just... And a big part of that is because a lot of these countries, and I think this is hard for Americans to understand, uh, they just didn't exist hundred years ago. So it's hard for people to have this national sentiment because they identify more with these other concepts of identity. So U.S. historically has been a staunch supporter of Saudi Arabia. And a lot of people, I think, rightly point out that this is kind of screwed up in a lot of ways because Saudi Arabia is really a brutal dictatorship ultimately, right? They impose some pretty, pretty serious punishments for political dissidents. And they do things that I mean, some people compare to ISIS, and I think probably rightly, you know, they they do public executions and beheadings, and they lash people, and they cut people's hands off, and, you know, the, the argument is, how can we possibly support these people? And I, I think, you know, a lot of people initially feel inclined to point to oil, and they say, oh, well, you know, we import a lot of oil from Saudi Arabia, bah. and I know you have an opinion about this. I do. Uh, it's just silly. I mean, we import maybe 8% of our oil from Saudi Arabia, but I think the thing that people, this is the whole war for oil with Iraq thing too. Now, if you look up how much oil we're importing from Iraq, it's like 0.0 whatever percent. I mean, it would be the dumbest war for oil ever if that's what it was, which it wasn't. Because the point is, I mean, the thing is, oil is traded as a commodity on the open market between companies. It's not like Obama is like, oh, yes, I'm going to buy 23 million barrels of oil from Saudi Arabia today. Like, that's just not how it works. So the there is an interest in keeping the oil flowing, and the military is interested in that. But the idea that because we buy a little bit more oil from one country today, we it, it like we need to control the oil somehow. It's like someone else could just come in and bid more, and they would they would buy it. So... Uh, I think the fact that we get something like 7% of our oil from Saudi Arabia is much closer to completely irrelevant than many other people think. And I'm inclined to, to agree with you there. And the question that remains then is, well, why do we support Saudi Arabia? 
Right. And, you know, in the nature or in the spirit of the show, I'm not going to, you know, say that one thing is correct or, or, or is not, but I'll, I'll propose one idea that I don't think gets discussed quite as much sort of in day-to-day media coverage of the issue, which is the threat of a regional nuclear arms race. So part of our alliance with Saudi Arabia is an implicit security guarantee. And that helps, you know, counterbalance the threat in Saudi Arabia's mind from Iran, especially when they were actively pursuing nuclear weapons. Now, if we immediately remove the security degree from, or security guarantee, excuse me, from Saudi Arabia, and now with Iraq gone as this buffer state to Iran, you can pretty easily imagine Saudi Arabia saying to itself, well, we're alone here, and the geopolitics and dynamics of this region are shifting quickly, and Iran is gaining power, and now these sanctions are lifted. Uh, maybe we should seek nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons quickly to act as a strategic deterrent to Iran. Now, Saudi Arabia has not done this yet, and I believe this is in part because of the guaranteed, uh, the security guarantee that remains outstanding from the United States. And I don't necessarily know what the solution to that is because, you know, mm-hmm. that implies that sometimes we need to support really terrible people in order to, you know, help prevent a greater threat, which is the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Or a conventional spool up and general interstate instability. Sure. You know, even if it wasn't nuclear. Yeah. And and just to clarify for our listeners, uh, Iraq is not gone, uh, but the reason that it's gone as that buffer state is that it is now largely under, it is under increasing, at least the part of it that's not taken over by ISIS, but it's under increasing influence from Iran, in part because it's now ruled by Shia, uh, just as Iran is. And there's, so... Because Iraq is largely Shia, and now ruled by Shia because it's a very majoritarian kind of place, it's much closer to Iran and sort of decisively in Iran's sphere. So it's a little bit threatening to Saudi Arabia now, as opposed to feeling like a bulkhead. So we're in this we're in this weird situation where Iran is feeling like it needs it might need nuclear weapons. Um, it had put its program on pause, but it had built up a lot of a lot of material, nuclear material, and a lot of centrifuges. Now, uh, most people know next to nothing about nuclear power, nuclear bombs, and they hear uranium and they freak out. The, the enrichment level of uranium that you need for a bomb is way, way, way higher than what you need for a power plant. And uh, it actually takes a lot of work to turn the uranium from a power plant into a bomb. And in fact, you can't use bomb uranium in a power plant because it would blow up because it's bomb uranium. And what that means is that that enrichment means a certain isotope, I think 238, of uranium as opposed to 235. So 235 is not very unstable. 238 is very unstable. So if you have low enrichment, what you do is you burn off some of that 238 pretty slowly through the power plant and that boils water and that turns a turbine. That's how a nuclear plant works. For a bomb, you need a lot more of that 238 because if you have too low a density of those unstable particles, they don't create a chain reaction. And it's really, really hard to enrich something to that level. Just like 
just like any distillation or enrichment process, except way, way, way harder. And you can't just do more of it to get there. You need much, much, much higher precision. And enrichment is essentially accomplished with these centrifuges, right? Just just for the sake of defining right. what those are, they spin yeah. one type of urine. Actually, I don't know physically how it's done, but centrifuges. I do. Be, okay. Yeah. Good. Yes. So the way the way it works is that since two thirty eight is slightly heavier than two thirty five, about you know a little over a percent heavier, you have to use mind bogglingly high precision centrifuges to try to suck off the two thirty eight from the 235 um, and try to pull out more significantly more 238 than you do 235 and you have to do this over and over and over again um, the precision is just you know it's just so so hard to get right gotcha yep and so uh, Iran is sitting on a bunch of centrifuges and a bunch of uh, power plant level uranium and Iran is claiming that it's actually converted its program to a purely civilian one, uh, which as far as we can tell, looks like it was probably the case. At some point, they just changed policy. Um, this may be a, an example of where sanctions actually work, because while Iran does have a need for security, two things might have changed their mind about the nuclear program. One of them is that having control of Iraq creates for them a natural ally and a natural buffer and ally against Saudi Arabia. Um, so they are now less directly threatened. Uh, and then the other thing is the sanctions were crazy painful. I mean, again, gas shortages, really high unemployment, in particular for young men, just really, really bad time. You know, just to give a sense of how bad the sanctions were, in that same article I was reading this morning, where I learned about the founding of British Petroleum, one of the the sort of the big points of the Iran nuclear deal is about a hundred billion dollars worth of Iranian assets that were frozen uh, in the 2012 sanctions are becoming unfrozen. Everyone's saying like, "Oh my God, that's so much money! They're going to be able to you know immediately revamp the economy and become independent of you know trade with with the West and other parts of the world." and I don't, that's apparently not entirely true for a couple of reasons. The first is about $50 billion out of the $100 billion of assets that are going to become unfrozen are immediately gone due to existing liabilities that the state has yeah. to pay. And then another $25 billion need to go sit in essentially foreign reserves for economic and monetary policy reasons. Yeah. But then the number that kind of boggled my mind is that the amount of investment required just to really get their economy back on track is like a trillion dollars. So they're getting $25 billion worth of usable assets unfrozen out of a trillion that they need. So these sanctions were really, really harsh. Right. And they actually need to spend to get their oil production back online. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the deal happened and the sanctions (laughs) are lifted and we'll talk about it. Uh, We'll talk about what that looks like. But uh, zipping forward a little bit, yeah, they need to. It looks like they need to invest something like between fifty and hundred billion just to spool their oil assets back online because so many of their oil assets had sat, had been mothballed, um, and just broken down over time due to the sanctions. So they're in really bad shape. They decide to come to the table for a deal with the West uh, to say, hey, just bloody lift the sanctions. And there's a lot of back and forth. John Kerry's flying out to. I think Geneva all the time. Um, mm-hmm. 
And there was there were seven powers. It was a six plus one. The one I believe was Russia, because they were they did not they presented an alternative plan. Whereas the six powers U.S., France, Britain, etc., presented one, and then there was Iran. So you know it goes back and forth for a long time. And uh, here's the short details. Iran had to get rid of 97% of its nuclear stockpile. So of all the material that was there, they just had to... Now, they sold it, so they got some money for it, and they sold it to Russia. But they got rid of that, and they had to get rid of most of their centrifuges, in particular, any that... Uh, I think 80% of their centrifuges went, and in particular, any that were of that higher end of the... Because they're also configured differently for, if, for going from low to medium or medium to high richness enrichment so they had to get rid of a ton of stuff so what it did from our perspective is if you've been following the news about a year ago we were talking about breakout time breakout time being if they decided all right we're gonna make a bomb it's gonna happen how approximately how long would it take them to get to that point um and it's probably gone from about three months to over 12 months uh which is great because they would have to build up a bunch of centrifuges and then burn through a lot of their material to get there. There are inspectors running around that are allowed to run around and look at almost everything, not military sites, uh, because they're sort of allowed to have some military secrets. Uh, but we're also, you know, we're doing some uh, satellite surveillance and other things to see if there's anything fishy going on. What they get in return is basically the sanctions lift. Now, uh, you might say, well, now that the sanctions are lifted, can they just go back to messing around? And the answer is, if they do, there is a snapback clause. You need a majority of those seven to vote for it. But you have the United States, France, Britain, and Germany who would all say, yeah, okay, forget it. Sanctions back on. But yeah, all Iran really gets out of it is uh, a lifting of economic and monetary sanctions so that they can start trading with the West again. And in fact, after they got this, one of the first things Rouhani did is he basically literally went shopping throughout Europe. So he's like in, I still, I think he's still in Italy at time of recording um, and he's penning deals for like airplanes and stuff like that in part in exchange for selling oil, which unfortunately for Iran is really cheap right now, which will, uh, it's a great question as to why that might be. Maybe we should make a podcast episode about it. Maybe, but, maybe we'll follow up with another episode on it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but he's off doing some shopping and penning deals, uh, that are going to be, you know, really great for their economy and might make them a little friendlier with the West. Right. So I think a big part of, you know, a big part of the sanctions certainly was the right for these inspectors to enter Iran and inspect these different uh, potentially suspicious looking uh, enrichment of nuclear facilities, right? And one of the more interesting critiques to the deal, the Iran deal that I've read, is the time that Iran is allowed to take before they permit nuclear inspectors to actually enter. And it's up to 24 days. So if nuclear inspector A from the uh, from the UN says, you know, something weird is going on at this location, we need to come see it, Iran can say, okay, great, uh, come visit in 24 days. And 
you know, without context, you might think, well, maybe that's not so bad. Uh, as you mentioned, Eric, you know, they have state secrets. They, they're, they should have a right to protect that, whatever your opinion on that is. And the counterpoint is South Africa, which had a nuclear program at one point as well. Mm. And when they decided to go through the international disarmament process, the time period when an inspector could essentially enter a facility was 24 hours. And the argument being so made, they had to give they, they had to give 24 hours notice, but not more. Exactly, 24 hours, not 24 days. So one of the critiques right. from people who are opposed to the Iran deal, or even some folks who are in favor of the Iran deal, but you know are still allowed right. to pick out details that they might not agree on, is that seems a little fishy. If they are really committed to disarmament, why is there such a long time period to let inspectors in? Yeah, yeah, it is weird, and uh, I think it's. If I had to guess, it's largely just because Iran is distrustful and worried about what, and probably up to some weird stuff in general, um, and likes to keep that secret. And I think that one, of, I mean, one of the nice things about the sanction snapback is that you just don't, you don't need to, you know, need to go to court. You could just say, "Hey, look, Iran, you're just being too fishy. You're not being cooperative. We're tired of your crap. Sanction snapback until you change." And so there's still there's still, you know, and we know they got rid of a bunch of material and we know that they've got a longer breakout time and there's more of a site than there was. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I agree. The 24 days thing is weird. I think anyone using that as a reason or, you know, Iran is going to have more money and therefore build a new military. Uh, I think anyone using those as objections is letting perfect be the enemy of good where, where they say we can't have a deal because it's not perfect. It's like, look, it's just better. I think I'd love to see a diplomatic process started off with someone at the UN getting up, giving a speech and saying, Iran, we're tired of your crap. <laughs> tired of your crap. <laughs> Sanctions come back. Deal with it. time. Yeah. It's going to sting. <laughs> if diplomacy were conducted in that language, way more people would pay attention, right? Yeah, it's true. C-SPAN <laughs> would be the most watched network in America. So I, I think a couple of the big takeaways are, you know, Breakout time has been reduced to this deal. Inspectors are allowed to come in. Uh, it, sanctions are obviously lifted. Um, the ability for Iran to uh, continue enrichment of plutonium is also eliminated. They basically had to fill in their uh, heavy water plant with concrete, so all of those centrifuges are just bonk and unusable. Right. And, and in return, they get a bunch of assets unfrozen and the ability to begin international trade again and try to you know, tap into this... Uh, global development trend, you know, that they kind of missed out on in 98 to 07, sort of this golden age of, of development. 98 to 07. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's very precise. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, what does Iran want out of all this? I mean, obviously they want security, which uh, they want to not get invaded, which is why they, uh, you know, thought about the nuclear program in the first place. They're feeling a little bit better having Iraq in their pocket. They, you know, they want prosperity. They missed out on a ton of it. Uh, it really bites, you know, having huge unemployment and being poor. And so this has been, I think, pretty motivating for them. And, you know, they have a sense of, they have a strong sense of nationalist pride. They don't like looking like or feeling like or projecting that they're a puppet of the West, which is why I think some of the rhetoric when Iran gives speeches to its own people, when Khomeini and even Rouhani give speeches to their own people, they talk about 
the deal being like a victory as opposed to a, a like successful new age of friendship in ponies uh, because they're still because <laughs> still so much of their identity is wrapped up in being independent and revolutionary and somewhat anti-Western. Uh, and they want to protect Shiites in general because so many in so many countries Shiites have been sort of oppressed either majorities or minorities. Um, Bahrain is a good example of where that's still happening. And so they fund Hezbollah and other stuff, uh, you know, to keep them, you know, Lebanon is, is one of their interest areas. So I think those are the four things that they want. And I think knowing those four things gives us a lot of opportunity to think kind of rationally and strategically about what we might want to, how we might want to deal with Iran going forward. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Totally. And when we were preparing this episode, you described this, um, essentially the completion of the deal as something that, that made sense in terms of Iranian you know, self-interest or national interest, however you want yeah. to call it. And I thought that was interesting because if you frame something in terms of self-interest, you can think, you know, if you're using different frameworks for thinking about international affairs, you know, that might fall under the rational actor bucket, right? And that's useful because if you can attempt to understand what's in a country's self-interest, you can attempt to try to predict what they would do in, in one case or another, right? And I, I think the um, sort of the counterpoint to that would be, well, what if there's another framework for thinking about it? And I, I read this case study recently, it was actually about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, that discussed how using different frameworks can result in different predictions that can result in different policy decisions, right? So one counterpoint I'll provide to the rational actor theory is, you know, what if you assume that in Iran, instead of, you know, the country... Instead of thinking of the country as a single entity making decisions, this this mm. actor, this this person, if you will, you're kind of anthropomorphizing. Monolith. Yeah. yeah. You're anthropomorphizing a country, kind of, with that theory, right? Um, yeah. We do that in international relations all the time. It's one of our favorite things. And it's a good place to start, I think. I think it's as good a place to start as any, this relative power relation analysis. But if you no longer consider Iran as a single entity making decisions and instead think of Iran as a consortium of competing individual and group interests, then you also kind of need to start considering the security and self-interest of the elites that want to retain power in Iran. And in this case, it's it's the conservative elites, It's which is a little uh, you know, ironic in a way because it's a conservative elites in a revolutionary government. But uh, 
the conservative elites who certainly want to retain power. So what you could reasonably call self-interested when talking about the welfare of the state as a whole might, act, might not actually predict what, the actual outcomes of state actions because... Right, or the behavior of the leadership because their interests may diverge. Exactly. Yeah, the, the outcome of sort of how organizations within Iran work, what their, you know, their, their functional processes are, could result in something that doesn't really square with this idea of, of Iranian self-interest. So the, the, this position and perspective that I've come across in a couple of articles uh, talking about the Iranian nuclear deal and the regime is, and, and you've mentioned this already in, in this show, how the current Ira- uh, Iranian regime and government is really ideologically founded on opposition to America and the West. I mean, the 79 revolution was in a lot of people's eyes, overthrowing a Western, specifically an American puppet. So a lot of folks are saying, a lot of analysts are saying that there will be a threshold to how willing Iran is going to be to, uh, in how willing they're going to be to cooperate with American diplomacy going forward, since cooperating too much may be seen as uh, delegitimizing and can therefore threaten the the government and the elite's control. So it's just two ways to think about the same thing. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my thought on that is that we've seen through history where, we've seen through history many examples of where uh, a allegedly incredibly ideological country uh, sort of twists how it defines its ideology to fit with what is uh, geopolitically expedient. So... I mean, the United States, for example, was very intensely anti-British, uh, you know, right after the war. And then we invaded Canada and got the White House burned down in 1812. And then quickly we became pretty good buds. We, uh, the Civil War is a little complicated. But anyway, uh, you know, we were fa- our, our Declaration of Independence is mostly a screed against the British monarchy. We just don't pay as much attention to that stuff. And we... You know, we love liberty and freedom and democracy. And then in the Soviet, excuse me, in the Cold War, we sided with essentially like fascist, dictate, brutal fascist dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And we side with Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that they're pretty awful. Um, and China, which is allegedly communist, is actually becoming more and more capitalist or at least, you know, uh, state run corporatist. Um, and during the Cold War, they sidled up to the U.S., and almost went toward the Soviet Union, even though they were communist buddies. So I just think there are so many examples of where geopolitical interest ends up trumping ideology that I think Iran will find a way to gradually shift the message. You know, And you can think of it as a little bit of a sinister like 1984 animal farm way, where you mm-hmm. go like, oh yeah, we've always been at war with Eurasia. Or, you know, two legs good, four legs... <laughs> or four legs good, two legs bad, and then four legs good, two legs better. So you can think of it in a sinister way like that, in particular in a country that's really good at controlling messaging um, and controlling what people are exposed to, although it's getting worse at it, see the Green Revolution. Um, But anyway, long story short, I think that that pivot is not that hard. And that's, you know, I come from the realist school of, international relations. So I think that colors my, my view a bit, but I, I think that their interests are largely aligned and they'll, they'll find a way to make sure that they are, you know, in one way or another governments are, and this isn't always the case. You can have really tyrannical governments, but 
they're legitimized to a degree by the secular demographics of its country, right? And you were talking a couple minutes ago about how, you know, Rouhani, uh, the Iranian president, is kind of traveling around Europe and trying to drum up these, um, you know, um, airplane deals and visiting Rome. Uh, hanging out with the Pope? Hanging out with the Pope, yeah. What a, what a fun weekend, right? Yeah. Actually, I wouldn't mind meeting this Pope. Uh, and, well, that's a tangent. Anyways. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you look at the Iranian population, 60% of the 80 million people that live in Iran are under 30. So there may be change coming, especially if they are, as a result of this deal, exposed more to standards of living that are available to them if their country can interact with the rest of the world and they can become predisposed at earlier ages to, I don't want to say Western norms, but less state-controlled ways of governance, right? Mm. And so to this degree, I think you might have a point. I think we might be able to get over this sort of conservative ideological opposition to cooperating with the West if the majority of Iran's youth uh, really wants it. And that's one big area of you know, non-violent diplomacy that the United States really has is the power and impact of Western culture. Right. And we, I mean, we know even if, even if the elites are thinking selfishly at the expense of, you know, are willing to think selfishly at the expense of national security, which I don't think they are, but even if they were, you know, the green revolution shows us that they, you know, the throne is a little tottering. And if, you know, if there's enough demand and enough opposition to them, uh, things could get ugly. And so I do think that, yeah, it's in their interest to at least manage, you know, manage that transition yeah. rather than try to fight it all the way. I mean, there, there are seriously no, uh, certainly no hard and fast rules in social sciences. But something that's frequently true in history is more prosperity means less social instability, right? And the Green Revolution is just one example of that. So right now, Iran has pretty high youth unemployment, uh, yeah. and you know, it may be in elite, elite self-interest to rectify that. And one way to do that is to track foreign direct investment and you know everything that needs to happen politically to encourage that investment. Yeah, and so I think I think life for Iran is looking up, and that's one of the reasons I like the deal uh, is that when life's looking up, people act a little more. They're, they're a little more attached to, to like, hey, let's just raise a family and, you know, send them to school and drink Coca-Cola and stuff like that. And, and read ESPN or the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Anyway, they're more attached to that. And so I, I think things are looking up for the West as well with respect to Iran. I think, I think this is good stuff. And I think that I remember a friend of mine said, uh, you know, I don't like the deal just basically because Iran is evil and we just have to oppose them because they're evil. And, you know, I think we've already talked about the, we've already talked about the Saudi issue where we side with the Saudis, even though they're pretty brutal as far as dictatorships go. Yeah. You had Ahmadinejad say, wipe Israel off the map, which was a little bit intense, although not actually a sign that they wanted to nuke them. Because again, it would be suicide. Um, yeah, and they they support Hezbollah and the Houthis, which are these non-state Shia rebel groups that the U.S. calls terrorists. So there's, I mean, Iran isn't always 
Ren is not actually the good guys, right? This isn't like making a deal with, I don't know, uh, you know, the poles or something, right? This is, this is, you know, Ren are, Ren are some troublesome dudes and they support some, you know, they, they make life tough in the Middle East sometimes, you know, Hezbollah makes life tough. The Houthis are taking over Yemen and they're just a side note about the Houthis. Their motto is, oh God, I forgot to write it down, but it's something like God is great, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. It's unreal, right? I know. It's, it's, you can't make this stuff up. Um, and Iran supporting them. But, you know, the Saudis are supporting their own bad guys, Sunni bad guys like Ansar al-Islam and the al-Nusra front uh, and guys like that. You know, and, and hey, we were all supporting ISIS before we realized they were ISIS, right? So, because in the Syrian war, we were saying, oh, yeah, they're part of the rebels. And, yeah, they're a little in, they're a little intense about the whole jihadi thing. But, you know, it's at least it's not, oh, God, what have we done? Yeah. And uh, so... So I guess my my response to the moral objection is it's not my point is not that Iran are good guys. It's that I don't think there are a whole lot of good guys here, including us sometimes. You know, we've we've definitely stuck our stuck a stick in the beehive a number of times and it's gotten pretty ugly because of it. So my thought is that the world's going to be a better place when we do the thing that maximizes stability and security and economic prosperity. So let's just do it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's difficult, especially in America, uh, and there's lots of historical reasons for this, to approach foreign policy from any perspective that's not really centered on, on morality. And morality is, is, is a good thing, but sometimes you're left with, like, you know, the better of three really terrible options, right? And, and, in this case, we're talking about if, if there are no good guys, we're kind of left with, with bad guys that we need to work with in the region. You know, why are we doing it? Why don't we just leave Saudi Arabia out to, to dry? You know, they're such uh, terrible people that, you know, routine, routinely violate human rights and all that. And, you know, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the risk of a regional nuclear arms race. And I think I brought that up in conversation with some folks before. And the response is kind of like, really, don't you think you're kind of stretching that a little bit? And the example that I, the, the historical example that I like to cite is the Suez Canal crisis. And without getting into too, yeah. too much detail, yeah, it's, it's a super interesting event that occurred in the early 1950s after the war, you know, France and, and Great Britain still had essentially colonial interests in Egypt and Egypt decided to nationalize the Suez Canal and the United Kingdom and France, you know, Obviously, didn't want this to happen. The West didn't really want this to happen either, but UK and France decided to use force, and America said, I don't know, this kind of reeks of colonialism to us, so you know, you guys were on your own, and it really left uh, our closest allies, especially following World War II, kind of out to dry. And, well, what happened? One, uh, France immediately began to pursue the development of nuclear weapons and cited the abandonment of American support as the driving cause of that. And Great Britain immediately began to pursue the development of thermonuclear weapons. So they already had nuclear weapons, but now they're like, all right, well, if we don't have American support and we're right here near Russia, they have hydrogen bombs. We also need hydrogen bombs because we can't count on America. So the abandonment of American 
security guarantees has led to nuclear arms races and proliferations before. Right. So we took the moral high ground and it was, it was, it made the world a scarier place. Yeah. Cause it was the, you know, it kind of was the moral high ground to let the Egyptians have the Suez Canal. Yeah. And, and again, uh, I don't think either of us now are trying to, you know, take a morally justified, yeah, take a uh, morally justified or take a position. It's, we're, it's just, uh, you know, trying to explain that you can easily see both sides' uh, perspective on this, right? America obviously right, has yes. a deep history with, with anti-colonialism, with, you know, the, the myth of our revolution. So, I mean, you can see both sides. The, the trick is, I think, not to get caught up in one opinion or perspective or another and just try to understand how you know, the motivations of different parties or groups within each party can lead to outcomes that sometimes are not really anticipated. Right. Yeah, exactly. Is Yeah, I like that. So, I, I mean, at this point, so we we now have a good sense of everything that's happened from World War One. not everything, but <laughs> a lot of the everything. Uh, we, so we now have a good sense of, of what's happened sort of through the 20th century, nuclear deal, it's a new day, and and this sort of changes everything. I mean, we've got so many options with Iran, you know, that that we're not, you know, we've got, we've got an opportunity to to make some choices. Um, and so I think that's the most obviously understanding what happened in the past and why. That's great. Understanding what we could be doing and what we should be doing is, I think, the point of understanding the past in general. And you know, I I kind of put my IR hat on and I said. Okay, what are options? Well, I think we've got we've got the become really friendly with Iran option, and we say, okay, you're our new ally. Uh, we really like you. We're going to try to pull you away from Russia and China, and kind of move our security guarantee over them. We can stay hostile, uh, which will probably push them more towards Russia and China, you know, and and keep a security guarantee over the Sunnis, sort of at the expense of Iran and the Shiites. Or we can uh, try to run the middle where we, you know, don't pick a side. We try to balance them off each other. We try to get along with everyone as well as we can. I think that's it. I mean, I think those are all three at least reasonable options. Yeah, and we're drawing these options at a very, very high level, right? And it, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know. Yeah, these are, more, these are more dispositions rather than whole strategies. Sure, and... You know, for the sake of providing, you know, both sides of the argument, it, what what could someone who opposes this deal say, right? Well, if, you know, option one is become really friendly with Iran, well, the risk there could be Iran doesn't actually end up wanting to be that friendly with us because, you know, sort of as we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, cooperating with the West could risk undermining, you know, a substantial portion of the conservative government's domestic report. So maybe that's a risk. Um, if option two is continue to maintain a position of hostility with Iran, um, you know, that could risk pushing them towards Russia or China, which they've historically had relationships with. It could risk us losing the ability to continue to diplomatically influence Iran and therefore, you know, gain perhaps some modicum of control over its extra national military forces, Hezbollah and Houthi. And this is important because... Iran is not only involved um, via these extranational groups in Syria and Iraq, but also in Yemen, 
which is essentially devolved into a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So uh, a, a hostile position with Iran can, you know, risk not being able to influence you know, them that way in the future. And then if the third one is balance everyone off each other, I mean, I, I'm just kind of left with this thought, you know, wouldn't it be really nice if we had a strong, powerful, secular country in the Middle East in between Saudi Arabia and Iran so that you can... That's a great idea. Yeah, because then you can get engaged in triangular diplomacy and balance them off one another, right? Um, except, of course, we, we destroyed it. Well, it's still there. We just got rid of the the secular aloof part, and now it's a Iranian puppet state. Sure, we we destroyed. Well, I guess half of it, I guess half of it's also ISIS. Half of it's ISIS. Part of it is is, is Kurd. Uh, we, we destroyed its ability to act as a balancing power in the region. Right. Yeah. I mean, because it's just so weak and useless and fractured and awful. Right. Yeah. It's bad days. The the try to balance everyone off against each other and there's just so many movies where you try to do this and it doesn't go well and in part because i think for saudi and iran there's just they have some uh fundamental you know they have they have fundamental fundamentally mutually contradictory needs Mm -hmm. um in the world and so you know your options are on some of those you're gonna have to make a choice uh, or just become isolationist, or you just say, "Hey, we don't care. Whatever, do your thing." The, so I guess that's option number four: is just pull out and say, "Forget it all," uh, which I don't think actually would be great for stability. In part because the stick is in the hornet's nest right now, and there is like with proxy wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia, there's a risk of them going to war mm-hmm. if they both put troops in the area and they shoot each other. You know, I, one of the things I think, so, you know, I, I'm going to say probably number three isn't going to be the one that is most exciting because I think it's, I think it's so clearly at risk to regional stability, but between number one and two, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about number one is that it actually affects Europe in a big way because you, because Europe right now is, so when Russia invaded, yeah talking about russia when russia invaded ukraine europe was like oh we should do something oh god yeah but you could just shut off the oil and that would be really bad and russia would suffer more than europe but russia is more willing to suffer than europe and so russia by being europe's sole oil supplier had a lot of leverage or not sole but primary oil supplier had a lot of leverage and you know if we were able to pivot iran towards the West, uh, and maybe they build a pipeline and ship through the Caspian Sea, and maybe go through Azerbaijan and then Turkey. You know, it could be a pipeline through Turkey. Anyway, all these options. If they're a, if Turkey is able to become the supplier of oil through you know via Greece and such into Europe that competes with Russia and it gets it from Iran, probably from northern Iraq, stuff like that, that could really change the game in Europe, and it would actually significantly weaken Russia um, and limit their ability to try to push NATO around the Baltics and stuff like that. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting aspects of the Russian sanctions were the limited scope, right? And everyone talked about, oh, well, we, we don't want to you know, hurt, hurt the population. And I, I think, again, that's, that was probably the, the moral path to take. But the, the political reason that that happened was because Europe was afraid that if Russia hurt too much, 
then they would push their leaders to restrict access to oil and gas exports to Europe. So we, we really couldn't do much aside from really limited sanctions on a couple of oligarchs in Russia. Not that necessarily we should have, but the idea is if we pull Iran away from Russia's sort of sphere of influence and into uh, the global uh, global economy, and they develop a robust oil and gas trade relationship with Europe, uh, we do gain a good amount of leverage with Russia, and that seems like a, a positive development in my mind. Yeah, it, yeah. In particular, with you know, Russia's just they're pretty agitated and saber rattling still about you know we don't see it in the news as much because at some point you get uh, you get a little bit of saber rattling fatigue and you don't want to you know you don't want to hear the same thing all the time, but. Saber rattling may be a strategy for causing that fatigue where you start to lose vigilance and then, you know, and then they do something crazy like invade Crimea um, or in this case, probably Estonia. Anyway, um, yeah. So, you know, so anyway, one of the one of the pros of switching, you know, of becoming pro Iran is potentially getting leverage for NATO in Europe, reducing the risk of Russian invasion which is more real, I think, than most people would acknowledge. They go like, oh, that's not going to happen. They wouldn't invade Europe, although they, they did, um, if you count Ukraine as Europe. Then, but, you know, I guess the con there is that you're, you're massively disrupting the Middle East if you back off of Saudi and, and Israel as well. Because I think you'd, you'd have to back off both of them in order to, you know, in order to, sh- to shift his position towards Iran. That is really where the need for skilled, practiced, experienced diplomats comes into place because we need to somehow maintain our support for Saudi Arabia and Israel while incorporating Iran back into the global economy. That's not easy, but I certainly don't think that we can risk abandoning our allies for the sake of maybe gaining as close a relationship with Iran, potentially, because that certainly wouldn't be coming in the near term. No, it wouldn't. Yeah, not. Eh, that's a good point. And and you know the, I guess the option that we didn't list is, you know, is the slow and steady, you know, slow and steady thing where you actually try to change the landscape rather than just choose different options in the landscape. So I guess we're talking about short term strategies here, because mm-hmm. um, eventually you'd want it to be the case that. Iran and Saudi are not as opposed to each other. But I think for geopolitical reasons, there's always going to be some tension, just like between Pakistan and India. There's always going to be tension between them in, because of the, the geopolitical positioning. Uh, anyway, so that's option A, friendly. Option B, hostile. You know, I guess you just keep things sort of as they are. Like, yeah, you're trading with them, but you're trying to keep your you know, trying to keep your elbow on them, continuing to make sure that their extra national forces are considered terrorists, um, you know, keeping the, uh, keeping the Sunni coalition united against them, which, I mean, I guess the, the, yeah. And so there are two iterations of hostile. I mean, one of them is trying to contain and suppress them in some way, you know, make, shrink their power. And the other one is just kind of maintain status quo and limit their, you know, limit their power projecting capability and keep the keep the coalition in place. And I think, as far as the suppress them or or degrade them 
option. I think short of attacking them, there's just not, that's just not an option. So I guess there's a status quo, status quo containment option here. Yeah. And I, I generally, again, this is just my opinion, but I, I generally struggle with the maintain a hostile position approach to, to Iran. I mean, for some of the reasons you mentioned, certainly, and, you know, there's just, there's so many examples in history of war that's like international war that seemed to happen in part because leaders sort of had already become committed to the idea of war and weren't really willing to pursue alternate options first. And certainly not a perfectly analogous situation, but, you know, right before World War One, the Tsar in Russia and the, the Kaiser in Germany had already basically come to accept that war was inevitable. And so all of their efforts and focus became on preparing for it rather than seeking uh, other diplomatic options, which a lot of really sort of seasoned professional diplomats at, at the time thought were, were still available. So I, I, I don't see as many benefits to this hostile position as towards, you know, an aggressive diplomatic approach, if you want to call it that. I think it's worth engaging with people, even if uh, with people and different societies, even if it, it, it first it seems like there are a lot of cultural barriers. Yeah. Yeah, I think that my my one thought out of this is that given that there are going to be a lot of these conflicts where you have to make a choice. So, for example, where you have to make a choice. So, for example, in Yemen, you know, between the Saudi-backed original government and the Houthis, you know, we're, we're backing the Saudis. And that's always going to be... So I think this idea that, you know, obviously attacking them is just silly. But I think even as we're... I mean, it's maybe like the Soviets, right? We had... We had open relations with them. We conducted diplomacy as much as possible, um, but it was never going to be, you know, I think it was just the geopolitical positioning made it kind of impossible to, to like actually be super friends with them. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, I'm wondering if, you know, I think when I, I think when I say hostile, I just mean picking the Saudi side and giving them the security guarantee, which is at, which is naturally at Iran's expense. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, a reality we would have to accept if we, you know, if we weren't going to abandon Saudi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's all I mean by hostile. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even in the Cold War, you know, as you said, despite the the major risk and geopolitical jockeying, we always had a red line direct between the leaders of the two countries, and you know, take and embassies. We always had embassies. Embassies. We. That's which I mean, spy hives, but still, there was still, you know, real talking going on. Which is why, given the recent developments between Saudi Arabia and Iran are really pretty concerning. They, they completely cut all diplomatic relations. And no matter how hostile two nations get, if you can maintain some formal channels through which you can communicate in the event that things spiral out of control or people make miscalculations, uh, it seems like a really sound good idea. So the, the fact that, that that was a development that occurred recently, I actually consider fairly troubling. Oh, yeah. I I basically don't understand why you would ever choose to not have a diplomatic channel open, other than for, I guess, internal domestic rabble-rousing. You know, it's, it's a jingoist thing, ultimately, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think, yeah, given, yeah, given how much tension has escalated between Saudi and Iran. I mean, I think there's real risk of something like Yemen or how they're dealing with Syria spiraling a bit. Um, 
you know, what does that mean? I mean, I think I think that means that the the nuclear deal and our options going forward of, for example, having a bloody embassy in Iran again. I think that's a good thing. I think it's powerful because I think it gives us a little bit more control of the situation where we don't have to think of Iran just as a as a crazy uh, rogue, you know, rogue variable. Um, where we can actually try to influence this and de-escalate this. I think it's, you know, my thought is that I think we're at a point where we have the opportunity to increase stability in the region by being able to work closely with Iran and Iraq, as well as the Saudi coalition to make sure that the Sunni Shiite tension doesn't, you know, boil over and become all out war. Um, You know, ISIS is another variable altogether, but I think that as much as that's, a really terrible situation. The risks in the rest of the region are very real. Yeah. And I think us being able to get a lid on them can be really, really important. Yeah. You know, so I, I think, so anyway, I obviously think it's a good thing. I think we've seen, hopefully we've been able to show some of the, you know, potential arguments against moving closer to Iran. I mean, there are risks if we move too close to Iran too quickly. Uh, there are risks to nuclear deal because they do grow more powerful. It does allow them to emerge more quickly because, uh, you know, they're trading. So they have more money. They, so they can emerge militarily more quickly. If they're in an aggressive posture, it would it could increase, you know, it could increase the risk of war. Uh, I happen to think that the benefits outweigh the negatives here. Yeah, I, I think I, I tend to agree with you. And hopefully for the sake of being fair in the context that we provide. We hope that we also discussed some of the, you know, relevant critiques to the Iran deal, you know, the 24 day rule for inspectors to come in, the ability for Iran to gain growing influence and power in the region. I mean, those, those criticisms are there. I I tend to agree with you, Eric, that the pros outweigh the cons, but you know, ultimately it is, uh, up to you guys to to reconsider your own position and see if new information sways that in one way or another, or you stay where you thought previously. Yeah, exactly. I think for you, the listener, going away, the thing I am the thing I implore is not to look on the deal one way or another, but to you know take this as an opportunity to think about foreign policy from a historical, structural, security perspective that I think is really powerful and rises above obviously the rhetoric uh especially the moralizing rhetoric of both sides you know both the left and the right in the united states Uh, i think that perspective if we're if this is a good case study for using that perspective uh and i think it's something that's going to serve you really well going forward uh which is why we want to talk about it so i hope you enjoyed uh hope you learned a ton hope you enjoyed this extra special long episode and we'll see you guys Well, we'll talk to you guys pretty soon, probably about oil prices, uh, which is another really interesting thing going on. So until then, just remember, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause, think, and reconsider. So this is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. See you guys soon. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.